Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Melkin. My guest today is Nanette Friedman, who is the founder of Friedman Strategies, created in 2016 to help nonprofits advance their mission and maximize their impact. Nanette's nonprofit formula for success is the right strategy and effective organizational structure and giving people the proper training and coaching to help with implementation. Her practice focuses on strategic planning, governance and board development, financial resource development, and coaching and mentoring. Her book, On Board, What Current and Aspiring Board Members Must Know About Nonprofits and Board Service, was released in 2014. Before founding Friedman Strategies, Nanette worked as a corporate attorney and prior to that as a national field director for an advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. Nanette has authored and co-authored over 25 articles for Jewish Philanthropy starting in 2009, where she focuses on the various areas of her work as a consultant, including a few co-authored with another guest of ours, Laura Fish. I gather she has quite a few things to say about working and volunteering in the Jewish community. So it is quite my pleasure to welcome Nanette to the program. Thanks so much, Michelle, for inviting me. This is a terrific opportunity, one, to speak with you, but also excited to know about your podcast and kind of start listening to it in the car. You know, this is wonderful. Wonderful. Let's get started with how you went from being a lawyer to diving in the nonprofit world. As all the stories start, it all started way back. You know, I was thinking about this. I was with some other Jewish communal professionals at a conference in St. Louis the last two days. And I was thinking about being 15 years old and going to Israel on Alexander Musk High School in Israel. And I had received funding from our local Jewish Federation in Rhode Island. They gave each student that was traveling through their Israel desk, you know, a stipend or something to go. When I got back, the woman who was the head of the Israel desk, Duffy Page, who's a great mentor and friend, said to me, I want you to write up your experience and we're going to have you be the student guest at the Jewish Federation board meeting. And I was 15 years old and I just came back from Israel and I was so jazzed. And I remember walking into the boardroom and thinking, wow, this is so amazing. These people are paid, raised money. So people like Israel and I gave them, which I didn't know it was called then, but I was helping them touch the mission. And it was just one of those first experiences. And I was just really intrigued. I was really interested. So that was followed up by lots of different internships, both in the community and out of the community. And I kind of straggled between thinking, I'll go to law school, I'll work in the nonprofit space. I'll go to law school, I'll be a lawyer Mm -hmm. in the nonprofit space. And did a lot of both along the way. I was a summer intern at APAC. I was a leader on college campus and lots of different nonprofit organizations, both national and also local. And after I graduated from college, I got a master's in public policy. One of my professors was very involved with the independent sector, Virginia Hodgkinson, and she was amazing. And she brought Frances Hesselbein from the Girl Scouts to talk to us. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, this woman has touched so many lives and made the world a better place. I was just in awe again and thinking, all right, I don't know how this all fits together, but let's just keep going and we'll figure it out. So I got my master's in public policy. I worked for a pro-Israel advocacy group while I was doing that. I headed to law school and, you know, graduated from law school and said, okay, I might as practice my craft. Went to a law firm, which was doing a lot of pro bono work, which is one of the reasons that I went there. 
doing a lot of political stuff as well. And I got to practice law. While I was there, realized that while I really loved my corporate securities practice and the lawyers and whatnot, I still was really drawn to my pro bono clients. And it was decision time long term. So I did three years at the firm. And while I was there, we opened up an Israel business practice. So I also had the opportunity to work on that. And when my son was born, I took some time off to care for him as a newborn and did a lot of volunteer work while I was home. And when I thought about where I was going to land when I came back, the choice was really that it was time to declare. And so I told people, I'm going to go back to work. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I'm not going to go back to my firm. I looked at other types of law, nonprofit law being one of them. And all the places that I was volunteering with, day school, JCC, a synagogue, federation, all offered me a job, like little jobs. I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I came home and talked about it with my husband. And he looked at me and said, great, you'll be a consultant. There I'll be go. a what? I'll be a, you know, <laughs> this was not part of the plan. And so it was a long path from that 15-year-old in the boardroom to where I am today. But, you know, it's like the famous Steve Jobs quote, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. And it makes perfect sense. All these experiences, you know, not one, but all of them together kind of led me to really believe that this was how to use my skills and gifts and talents and to do the work that I really feel passionate about and love. Yeah. And you've been doing it for 11 years now. So clearly your husband was right. <laughs> he was right. It was a good push. I am an accidental businesswoman. I will tell you, right. I am absolutely an accidental businesswoman, but the flexibility in terms of my family life, it's been great. And really the ability to quest my thirst for all the different areas and all the different interests that I have, the practice has really allowed me to do that. So mm-hmm. I feel very grateful. I have like so many questions for you, but I do want to start out kind of with the basics of your firm and really just the evolution of it over the years, because I can't assume that you kind of came in and suddenly had a theory and had all your steps and (laughs) was ready to write a book. So how did you kind of evolve all of these different things or all these different theories and the way that you approach your work? So one thing that I'm very grateful for is that I'm an extremely voracious reader and someone who's really interested in being mentored. So I was very quick to identify people in the field who I liked what they were doing and I could relate to their approach to the work and became kind of groupies, if you will. So there are lots of people both in the Jewish community and out of the Jewish community, but who you just kind of really relate to. And I think with the internet and with so much available content, you really can learn from without even being in contact with them, which is a really amazing thing. So that was one. I did a lot of homework. I'm a perpetual student. You know, I have a master's degree, a law degree. That was no problem. I had worked in a nonprofit right out of college. I had done a lot of volunteer work as a lay leader. So I had been on the other side. I had chaired Israel Day. I had done fundraising. I had merged two synagogues. I had been on the development committee. I had been vice president. Like, so I had played all these different roles. Right. So it really was just taking the time to collect my own experiences, talk to people and put kind of the field of practice with it and to couple them together and put my own take on things. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely evolving. Every day I learn something new from my clients, from my colleagues, and I'm grateful for that. But the core issues of how you communicate your mission and vision, how you pick what to spend your time on, what your strategies are, how you get the right people in the organization, how you train them and coach them, and how you create a team, and how you measure all of that. Mm-hmm. Those core things 
are my guiding areas that I want to help people on. Everything else, you know, we try lots of new things and we see what works. And I'm grateful for the field evolving as well, because the field has really evolved. So let's talk a little bit about your process. Someone calls you up and says, hey, we're looking for a consultant for X, Y, or Z problem. Talk us through a little bit about how you approach a new client. When I was a lawyer, someone once told me, people call you with the problem they think they have, but it's often not the problem that needs to get solved first. And that's also very true in my consulting practice is that people will call me a lot because they're not raising as much money as they want to. Or problem number one for problem everyone. Problem number one for everyone, right? And usually that's a first call or there's a problem with someone in the organization. That's more on the coaching side of the practice. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, they're not raising enough money. So we look at why, what's going on here. And so that leads me to a series of questions about the board. Is the board engaged in fundraising? Was everyone on the board contributing stretch gifts? Are they acting as ambassadors? I mean, all the type of good questions. That leads us down the road of what can we do to tweak the board? And is that in like most of the situations that you come to, that's kind of always the first place that you examine and look at like, how is the board working and supporting the other initiatives? You know, the board as fiduciaries and also responsible for the strategic direction of the organization, Mm -hmm. I mean, the buck does stop with the board to borrow from Harry Truman. So I do tend to put a lot on the functionality of the board. Of course, it's a partnership with the executive. So we look at that quickly. And both of them need to have an overarching strategy and compelling vision that they're trying to attract other people to invest in. That's why, you know, people always say to me, well, why do you do all these different things? They're all so interrelated. You know, you call me because you have a problem raising money, but I want to know, okay, do you have a strategic plan? Is your case for giving tied to your strategic plan? Is your board energized and engaged in making it happen? How's your staff? What about your leader? You know, so all these questions quickly come to top of mind. And as we kind of peel back the onion, we have to make a course of action to figure out where we're going to start. Right. Is that easy? (laughs) Just like, and the way that you say, I'm just like, I can just imagine people coming to you and saying, this is the one little teeny piece that we have. And you being like, great, I want to know everything. How much pushback do you get? Or do they trust you when they bring you in that you know what you're doing and how to sort of approach their issue? It's a great question. So This is a business that is 100% referral. Mm -hmm. I don't have billboards and I don't take out ads. And so I have been really blessed for 12 years to have a growing business based on word of mouth. So there is some, oh, she's worked with this organization or this friend, or I heard her at this conference and, oh, I read her book and my board used her for a virtual training or a board retreat. So there is a lot of that. So there is a little bit of familiarity when people Mm -hmm. call that I do think allows them to feel safe sharing. But also, I want to make sure that organizations who are trusted to use their dollars wisely are really getting something that's going to be effective to solve their problem. When someone calls and says, I want to do a 10-part training series, and then you say, okay, well, do you have the right people? Who are you training? And they say, oh, we have a terrible board. You're going to train the terrible board to be better? Or should we first talk about your board selection criteria and how you're doing your nominating process and right. who's your new president? So part of it is my desire and I believe my ethical obligation to really help my clients use their funds wisely mm-hmm. and to pick interventions that I can help them with that are really going to help solve the problem and bring about the desired result. Right. It sounds like alignment is your number one 
focus when you start the project. It's my favorite word. I (laughs) love it. Alignment. Everyone's going to be aligned. Then we have to make a course of action. Look, the truth of the matter is some people just call and say, I need a board retreat. Right. And they don't want to tell me everything else. They just want the board retreat and they want to do an ambassador training, a storytelling training, and some solicitation training. And that's all they want. And they don't want to tell me anything more about the organization. They're not inviting me to partner deeply. Right. And I do that. But the most rewarding relationships are the relationships where people do invite me to really be their partner. I'm really proud of having multiple years with so many clients. You know, they're not always continuous, but they're multiple because you do develop that trust and you are their go-to person and you do make a game plan. I have a synagogue that I was brought in to work on their governance. And then we worked on their culture of philanthropy and we did a major gifts fundraising and we just finished their strategic plan. That was over the last four years. And along the way, I've done their trainings and their coachings and all these other things. But that's really the ideal engagement because I'm adding real value by knowing the players, knowing all the pieces and being able to lead them on a path to be more sustainable more efficient, and to deliver their mission in a more robust and meaningful way. And you're a person from the outside. I think the the best things about consultants is, you know, if I take a job and I start the job and I'm like, oh, I want to look at every piece of it and I want to do what you do as a consultant, that's not going to fly, right? That's not necessarily going to work so well. And the fact that your person is coming in for this specific reason to examine things in the organization and help them figure out a problem really gives you that advantage of seeing things from a different non, not necessarily non-emotional, but sort of a removed place where you can give feedback that maybe people in the organization have been giving for years, but nobody will listen to them. It's a conversation I have a lot with executive directors, development directors, you know, CEOs, where they say to me, you know, I could have told them the same thing, but they need to hear it from you as the outsider expert. That is absolutely true. And also being the third eye, you know, being able to see the different perspectives and hold them and facilitate. I mean, a lot of my job is facilitating difficult conversations Mm -hmm. at the board level, at the staff level, at the board and the staff together, you know, of thinking about where real decisions have to be made and people are emotional. And, you know, how do you kind of separate the emotion from the end goal and the strategy and what's best for the organization? And that is something that it really does benefit having an outsider come in. Yeah. And you have people who are attached to different pieces, especially historically. Like, wait, we can't do away with that program. Like, I love that program. These are their communities, the very emotional attachments, whether logical or illogical (laughs) to these pieces. One of my favorite lines I tell people is, I tell my kids that if they're in an uncomfortable situation, that they don't feel that they should do something, they could always blame their mom. My mom would really be upset. And I tell my clients the same thing. Blame the consultant. I can take the hit. This is us. She told us this is really what we need to do. She brought us the evidence. She showed us what they're doing in other places. And we trust her and we need to do this. And, you know, blame the consultant. I'm fine with that. So what's the most surprising when you come into a new situation or when you think about all the situations that for the last 11 years? Just in general, kind of what has surprised you over the years? either on the front end when you come into something or on the back end when you've completed your work? What surprises me day in and day out is the deep dedication of the people that work and volunteer in the nonprofit sector. I am blown away on a regular basis at the endless conversations, meetings, changes to schedule that disrupt people's personal lives and their deep commitment to the causes they work on behalf of. And I am humbled and in awe 
in some small way of being able to be part of that work. So that is a constant reminder. I will also say that big organizations, small organizations, you know, a lot of times larger organizations will like to say to me, well, you know, we're a very complicated organization, you know, <laughs> we have a big budget. Blah, blah, blah. That's fine. They often have many of the same problems that the small organizations right. have. Because if you have people, you have some of the same issues that come up. Boards are boards and you can be a big organization or a small organization. And what they like to do and where they want to spend their energy and time, you know, is often the same. So that is something that constantly is surprising to me. You know, you think you're walking into a $25 million organization and you expect to see different systems and processes and maybe different things than you would in your $2 million client. They both have a lot of the same needs sometimes. My conversation with Gali Cooks from Leading Edge, she talks about her CEO onboarding program and the same thing, right? She's got CEOs that are new to big organizations, small organizations, you know, umbrella organizations, niche organizations. But you know what? <laughs> you know, they all seem to be able to have the same conversations. That's right. And be wrestling with the same things, which I guess makes your job a little bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> and you see that a lot on the coaching side of things too. I mean, I really backed into the coaching. It wasn't satisfying to me to come in, give someone a strategy and give someone kind of some advice, write it up, leave it with them, and then go away and not know what happened. So mm-hmm. selfishly, you know, I got into the coaching and training work really as a way to kind of help them implement the hard work that we had just done. I didn't want my stuff to sit on the shelf. I really wanted people to be able to do it and to have both the accountability partner, the sounding board, and really the ear to really mm-hmm. to really partner with. So I am surprised both in the intake process and the work with the organizations and as leading edge on the coaching side, it's absolutely true. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a little bit. I love the subject of mentorship and coaching. As you mentioned just now, it's that you've been coming into it as more of an implementation of work that you've done previously. Are you also being contacted, as you, I think, alluded to a little bit earlier with problem people? Which to me is amazing to think that there's an organization who has a problem person and instead of saying, get out, (laughs) you know, saying, let's try and help you improve. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences coming in on those one-on-one more individual relationships. I think coaching has really evolved and there's nothing remedial about it in most cases. In fact, most of the executive directors and CEOs I work with put coaching in their contracts. They want to have an executive coach to work with. It's kind of, you know, having your fitness coach, right? That's so a lot advice. I'll think yes. about that for the yes. future. <laughs> yes. This is good advice. Put coaching in your next contract. It is really money well spent because it comes back to them and improved, you know, kind of mm-hmm. capacity. And it's really very good for the individual. So those people that come to me because they understand the value of coaching, they either worked with another coach or they have colleagues that have, those people I would say comprise about 70% of my practice. Those are people who are selecting coaching. Within that 70%, there are people who are new to the position that they have taken and they know that they need someone to partner with and to help to kind of get caught up to speed. So those are people who maybe worked in program and now are working in development. Or those are people who worked in a organization where they had a role and they were part of a big team and now they moved to a different organization and they're the only person. And so there are people at all different stages of the game and all different situations. But I would say they're not people that put it in their contract, but they're people who themselves said, I need a coach to help me grow into this next role. Mm -hmm. That's within that 70. Then there's 30% of the people who come to me 
because they've had a bad performance review. They've come to me because they have a very stressful situation and either the board chair recommended that they get coaching, but in the moment, or people who come to me because they're really going through a crisis and it's not so much that they love coaching and already are drinking the coaching Kool-Aid, but there are people who are in that moment, someone has suggested to them that they need someone to kind of walk through and walk with them. And that's very rewarding as well to play that role for people. And the interesting thing is most of those people, if they can get the money from the organization, end up continuing once we get over the hump. And for the majority, I mean, you're not a development professional. You're not an outreach professional, right? You're not an executive professional. So as far as there has to be some sort of common link between all of these people that is something that you start with and helping them get over whatever hurdle or however they need to see it. Because you're not going to say, well, in our organization in development, we do X, Y, or Z. I mean, obviously you have the experience with the cadre of organizations and how they do their work to draw from. But I'd love to hear a little bit about how you approach those conversations since it seems like they all have very similar needs when they come to you. There's a questionnaire that people fill out before we engage in a coaching relationship. It's confidential and I ask a lot. You can tell I like a lot of information. I think the information is really key to kind of being able to understand. So people share a lot as part of the intake process of getting going. And then we kind of devise what are the number one, two, and three goals that they have Mm -hmm. for the coaching relationship. And each week before I see people, they have an opportunity. There's a process that we established together where I check in on the homework that they were going to do. We check in on what issues are top of mind that they want to make sure that we discuss when we see each other the next time. And then I always circle it back to the larger goals that we've established until we accomplish those goals. So it's a very fluid situation in that people can be coming to you because of the point in their career they're at or whatnot, but then there's a crisis and that, you know, is what you want to talk about in that moment. So it's very much led by the person who's coming for the coaching. And I believe that that is really where the benefit lies. Like we're Mm -hmm. not on my agenda. We're talking about what's their burning issue. We do long-term stuff too, but if there's something that's burning, what we want to do is make sure that we talk through and make a plan in place for that. And then we follow up. And the next time we see each other, how did that work? What did you try? What did you learn from that? What can you take going forward? How can we prevent that situation from happening again? There's a lot of spot coaching. I wish I could tell you that I sit in advance and think about all the ways I'm going to help them transform their profession. (laughs) There's a lot of partnership and active listening. I mean, being a Mm -hmm. coach is really being an active listener. And I ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. And most of the solution sets they come up with, they come up with. It's because the right questions have been posed. And I remind them of things that we've talked about before in a way that allows them to connect pieces together to support the goals they have. So as someone who eventually would like to be an executive director of an organization, like, would it be advantageous for me to take coaching, (laughs) to get a coaching certificate to kind of figure out how to do this for my staff? Or is it the fact that you are not the executive director, you are not the boss that allows for these conversations and development to occur? Or is this something that executive directors can take on as a priority as a supervisor for their staff? Great question. The answer is both. I think that you absolutely would benefit from having someone help you think through your trajectory and help you plot your course. You know, alignment is my favorite word. My second favorite word is intentionality. I think intentionality is really what coaching brings to people. 
what's going on here and how can you be intentional in your actions going forward? So if you have that goal in mind, I think a coach can help you clarify your thoughts and chart your course. If you are going to be an executive director, and I can't wait because we need lots of good people rising through the ranks and going into the field, coaching your people is really healthy. And there are definite ways, techniques you can learn. There's this tension right now between should we get rid of 360s and all these feedback things that we do once a year? What does that mean to do it once a year in this day and age when things move so fast and mm-hmm. job and all this? Or you know, should the emphasis really be on regular coaching? And I believe that we need both. But I think that learning how to coach in the moment, learning how to give that real-time feedback to people in constructive ways, both makes for happier and healthier employees Especially we know this is true with millennials who like a lot of feedback and don't want to wait a whole year. And that's especially true for them. But it's also true where the jobs are not always as written in the nonprofit space. Never. Right? Never, never, ever, ever. (laughs) So you get hired and this is your title and you're doing 10 other things that were never on your job description. Your job has evolved. So I also think coaching is a respectful way to recognize that we ask of people extraordinary things, things that we didn't expect. We didn't hire them to do. We didn't expect that they knew how to do. So I think it's really a necessity. And have you ever coached somebody out of a position saying, you know what, we've been talking about this. It really feels like maybe this is just not a good fit for you. Or do you let them come to that conclusion? I was just going to say, I really try hard to give advice based on my experience. If someone is a development director, I mean, obviously I have a lot of experience helping organizations and people raise money. So if it's a content question, right, I will help in that moment. But I come in with no preconceived agenda. Again, I ask the right questions and I let them come to their own conclusions. And sometimes I'll pose a question to say, you know, it feels like, and, you know, that right. maybe, but I will never presume to know what's best for someone, but I certainly will help them figure that out. And I will tell you this, I think that we have so many good people and we need to retain them, which is why I love that you're doing this podcast. And I think that putting the support around them, training them, coaching them, letting them go to conferences, you know, mm-hmm. putting money in for professional development, these are all ways to retain people or as you point out to help people find the right place for them Mm -hmm. which is still a win if you look at it in the aggregate you've been listening to it's who you know the podcast i'm your host michelle w malkin this episode has been made possible through the partnership with the jewish theological seminary jts offers a variety of professional graduate programs including the davidson school of jewish education's online ma where you earn your master's degree in Jewish education online. To learn more, visit www.jtsa.edu slash admissions. Before returning to my conversation with Nanette, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Mark Rosen is the Associate Professor in the Hornstein Jewish Professional Leadership Program at Brandeis University. He discusses with me his research in Jewish community and the experience of ushering new Jewish professionals into the field. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. I will say that organizations are getting more sophisticated. There's a greater drawing upon a state-of-the-art management practices, principles, Mm -hmm. concepts, 
So I'm hearing more and more about management principles as a driving force. And I think a little bit less Jewish teachings as a guiding force. Hmm. And not that there's less Judaism in, in organizations, but I think that an organization, first and foremost, is an organization. And if it's going to be successful, it has to run according to management principles. And right. Jewish teachings can illuminate that. They can inspire people. They can maybe shed light on things. But if you're operating in the 21st century, you need to use 21st century knowledge. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Mark in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Nanette. Yeah, we talked a lot about encouraging somebody purposefully out of their position, right? That like, now they're going to go on to be an ambassador to say, oh, I had a really great experience at XY organization. Exactly. And as I've grown in my career, the value both for the individual and for the organization for somebody who stays for five years, for seven years, is enormous. And if you're able to sort of take on that ethos and that culture of helping and coaching your staff to develop and not assuming you've hired somebody to be amazing, and if they're not amazing in every single possible way, then there's you know an issue. And if they're unhappy, then that's not just on them, right? That's something that you know is on the organization, is on the supervisors, and not something to be ignored, but something to be fostered and cared for. And one of the things that I've heard a lot is that we're human beings and not human doings. And that thinking about people as people and not as your you know, particular job, like if they're not performing, why? And for organizations to take the perception of let's help this person as opposed to let's get rid of this person, it's fabulous. A hundred percent. And it's really about culture. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Someone said to me uh, a couple of weeks ago, what's the secret? of organizations that just kill it. And I said, they have great culture. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, they have great culture. So people are happy there and want to work there and give their all. And they have a culture of philanthropy. So donors are forefront and the board is leading with that culture of philanthropy. And so between having a great work culture where you attract the right people and a great culture of philanthropy, where you put the donor first, they're the most successful. Culture is one of these funny things, these attitudes, these beliefs, these, you know, sets of things that you can't quite articulate, but you know when you see it, right? right? It's really hard. And it's really important to create the culture you mentioned if we want to retain and help our people grow and also not leave the field. This is something that breaks my heart when I see people engage, they come out of college or they take a job and they have a negative experience with a mm-hmm. boss who doesn't have that attitude, perhaps. And then they're turned off right. from the field. That's really upsetting to me. So I always try to encourage this adoption. And I will say more and more places are getting it. And I've talked about this before in the program because I got my master's degree with HUC with the MPA from USC. And there are some students that opt to get the MBA. And after that experience say, well, why would I go get a job for $50,000? When all my colleagues in the MBA program are, you know, going to make 140, why don't I go do that and then, you know, be a philanthropist, which is not obviously a bad route, but you came to the School of Jewish Nonprofit Management for a reason. You were engaged in some way with the Jewish community and something along the way has showed you that the Jewish community is not a place where you can develop as a professional. So it's uh, definitely always been interesting in that program, the dynamic there. So let's kind of pull it more into the macro a little bit. Since you've been doing this work for 11 years, do you have an estimate of how many organizations you've worked for or worked with? 
Oh, it's really hard. I mean, hundreds. The other thing is that the conference piece, you touch so many people. So, right. you know, I get an email from someone that says, I just was at a conference, you know, I think it was from JFNA and she wrote me afterwards and she said, I want you to know I implemented some of the things oh. right away when we got back and it already had a big impact on our organization. And so, you know, you feel like, wow, that was really like meaningful to hear that. And so it's hard to estimate just because I speak at a lot of conferences and I do a lot of training work. So Nanette has worked with every Jewish nonprofit there. (laughs) I don't just work in the Jewish community too, which is the other piece of it. You know, I spend time with other nonprofits as well. And I think that's really great and beneficial for both my clients in both directions bringing in kind of best practices, if you will, for a word that is needs to be retired, a phrase that needs a new one, bringing them both ways. But I've worked with a lot of people. And the thing that I say is Doris Feinberg, who did a lot of fundraising work and has recently announced that she's retiring, she once said to me, ooh, you have the fire in the belly <laughs> for this work. And I yeah. said, you know what? I wake up every day excited about doing the work, about being with my clients, about trying to help them do what they're doing better, more efficiently, more effectively, being more impactful. And I feel blessed. I mean, I feel really blessed that the path has taken me here. And you know, I feel like in some ways, I'm just getting geared up. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the trends that you've seen over the last 11 years, either issues that were 11 years ago that are no longer, or issues that weren't 11 years ago that are you know, kind of emerging. Any kind of overarching Jewish community trends that you've noticed through your work? The notion of what it means to volunteer has dramatically changed. The volunteers have changed because most people have dual income households. They don't have the flexibility to be a full-time volunteer. And that has major implications for all organizations. It has implications for you know how we structure meetings and events, of course, but also, you know, who we can get involved, how we can involve them. I tell people now, committees have gotten a bad name. It's all about working groups, task forces, and asking people to do individual, very specific tasks. I wrote a blog about how we need task rabbit for the nonprofit (laughs) volunteers, because really it is, I have Sunday free and I would like to spend the Sunday, but I don't want to commit to coming to board meetings on a regular basis, to being on a committee that's going to you know, drag on. So that's the biggest trend to me on the volunteer side. People mm-hmm. have less time. They want meaningful engagement. They want things that use their skills. They want to touch the mission. And they have very little patience for the bureaucracy that maybe at one time was tolerated, but there's waning patience for that. So what does that mean? That means that we have to create different types of volunteer engagement opportunities, that we have to use people's professional skills and be smart about that, that we have to make sure that we're alternating between morning, lunchtime, evening meetings, that we're letting people dial in or Zoom in or Skype in or go to meeting in. What else it means is that leadership succession is very different today. Leadership succession planning is Mm -hmm. very different today when you look at who is in the pool and what they usually would have been able to do in the organization. So that is universally changed over my time and really solidified. The other thing, of course, is working across generations, as I alluded to before, and the importance of really organizations learning how to work across organizations and not having the Passover kids table, but really having, again, meaningful engagement. 
And the biggest thing that, of course, has changed is that donors have all information at their fingertips. The expectations of donors in terms of reporting and showing impact and evaluation and benchmarks and all the key terms that we're all aware of, that's really changed. Mm -hmm. So those are the three that come top of mind. I'm sure there are more, but those three for sure. In my conversation with Laura, she was talking about particular people they had funded for a really long time that weren't being impactful in their work. And they had to say to them, sorry, you know, at least for this year, we don't see the value and what that then can do for the organization to say, oh, maybe we got to look at a few things and do some retooling and understand why our major funder that's been funding us for many generations now is saying we're not worth funding anymore. And those are important changes to be made. Nothing's taken for granted. Mm-hmm. I'll say the lesson in the last 12 years is that nothing should be taken for granted and you have to work for it every day. You have to work for the donor, the lay leader and volunteer, your staff. We live in infinite choice. With infinite choice in every direction, you have to bring your A game and you can't take anyone for granted. So practicing both meaningful engagement and practicing gratitude, those are not optional. Organizations that don't do those things well on the staff side, on the volunteer side, on the donor side, they just, you know, they can't. Right. So I'm going to bring it back to more personal stuff. And I'd love to hear, you know, what is your advice for our listeners? And they range in the many, many different fields of Jewish professionals, lay leaders in a number of different ways to those who have never worked for you or never heard you speak (laughs) or never gleaned from your advice. I'll say advice being one, getting and reading your book, which I will do myself. But yeah, I'd just love to hear what advice you have for our field, for the profession. One thing that I always think about, because it's been very true for me, is to think about the subjects that interest you and to think about your skill sets separately. I think you and I talked about this a little bit over email, but the subjects that interest me are you know, planning functions, strategic planning, organizational planning, planning, and raising money, so financial resource development, and governance, like how do mm-hmm. boards work, how do volunteers engage. Those are the subjects that interest me. The skills that I believe I bring value with are on being a strategist, being a facilitator, being a trainer, and being a coach. I would say to anyone in the field, you should get really clear about that for yourself. Because right. you may love working with children, elderly, education, whatever, that's the subject you like. But what's the skill that you want to really master? And the mastery on the skill side is what young professionals need to develop. They need to have mastery on the skills and then a deep understanding on the subject. That's a very interesting thing you bring up as far as mastery. So I recently read this book called Drive. We talked about it on the program before by Daniel Pink. And it really touches upon you know, what motivates us and specifically of the elements of having autonomy, purpose, and pursuing mastery. And I have struggled so much in trying to figure out, now I have a master's degree. So done, right? Check, master. Um, no. Trying to think about what is it about my profession, being a Jewish professional, that I can master, right? I'm not playing a flute, right? It's not something that I can, you know, practice constantly. And that was one of the things the book had mentioned about, you know, you practice something. I'm doing work in seven different areas in my work. How do I master, you know, all of those different areas? And how can I be intentional about the way that I master my skills 
when I'm not necessarily in control over what the work is that I do. How would you advise how to kind of gain that mastery? How do I focus on what it is that I'm mastering? And how do I then try and figure out how to gain more experience or more practice? So I do think that in the work environment, we are asked to do lots of different things. But there are things that you're naturally good at because that's your natural inclination and your gift, so to speak. Or there's things that you're really interested in. So you might watch TED Talks about, read about the subject, try to learn from other people, pay yourself to go to a conference if work won't pay. I mean, there might be lots of ways that you can learn more about something. So I think the biggest thing is to take time to do inventory with yourself. I once spoke at a Hadassah conference and the topic was the strategic planning of you. And it really was about applying strategic planning principles to our individual lives. Again, that intentionality. So I think the first step is doing proper intake and assessment and scheduling time with yourself to say, what are all the things I've been doing this year? Which things do I like the most? Which things do I not like the most? Which things are uncomfortable? Which things would I like to learn more about and go deeper in? And which things do I just want to you know, talk to my boss about getting off my plate because I just don't enjoy them. And if I have to keep doing them, I don't know if I'm going to stay in this position. So I think that that kind of intake with yourself, that self-assessment is really key. Definitely before you go into a performance review and hopefully, you know, doesn't wait a whole year to pent up. So that's the first step. The second step is thinking about what do you want your whole life to look like? Because I really think for Jewish communal professionals, for anyone, I mean, this is general advice, as a woman with two kids and my own business, and a husband who has his own career, and we both travel, you need to design your life. The skills that I identified where I had natural ability, and then I worked on by practicing and learning from other people, really fit into my life, right? I do a training, I know the date in advance, I can block it off the calendar, and it works with my husband's schedule, and we have a system for childcare, and it's known in advance. Mm -hmm. What wouldn't work with my life would being an executive director right now. Because being executive director right now would mean that I didn't have that control over the schedule, which Mm -hmm. is really what I needed for this stage of my children's rearing. So for every Jewish professional, after you do that intake, I would say, now think about your whole life. Think about your life holistically. Think about your family life. Think about your outside interests. Think about where you live. Do you like where you live? Do you not like where you live? Mm -hmm. Do you want to stay there? And then you have to do some matching. Right. You have to say to yourself, okay, well, these are the things that I like that I could develop mastery of and that I'm on the path. Are they marketable? Are they marketable in my area? Does it leave me good options? Are they marketable in the organizations in my area that I want to work with? I had someone call me who lives outside the East Coast, dying to get back to the East Coast and says, you know, I picked the wrong spot. And now he's dying to get back. And I said, well, what do you want to do? I'll do anything. Well, what are you really good at, right? <laughs> For younger Jewish professionals, it's not just a conversation about, oh, good, you like working in the Jewish community. It's what inspires you? What's the subject matter? What's the skill? How does that fit into your life? And then once you have all of that, you have to devise a plan. Mm -hmm. The plan is, what is your employer willing to do to contribute to your mastery? And what are you willing to do to contribute to your mastery? And how will you know when you get there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the benchmarks that you're setting for yourself? So public speaking is a great example, right? Where people say, oh, I have to do a lot of speaking in my job. And I'm terrified, not me, but- Yeah, yeah, there we go. Wait, really? Sure, not you. Yeah. (laughs) People say to me all the time, you know, like this woman said to me, every night before I have to give a talk as part of my job, I can't sleep the night before. 
and my palms sweat and my heart races and I'm terrified. I said, well, why don't you get a coach, a speaking coach? You know, why don't you call someone and Mm -hmm. have someone to get you through if that's part of your job and you're telling me like everything else about your job, except having to stand up in big crowds before your programs, you can fix that. Right. You can master public speaking. You can master fundraising. Mm -hmm. You can master marketing. You can master the skills. You just have to decide which one is worth. If you're going to be in marketing and you're not someone who understands social media, you can get that. Right. You need to get that. Until you understand that that's what you need, it's hard to be able to get the training to improve those skills. Yeah. So you need to make, I mean, again, planning, alignment. I mean, I feel like a broken record, but I do think that we rush people through, get a job and then, okay, I don't like that job. Get the next job. But what did you accomplish in this job? What are you building on? What do you want in the next job? What skills do you want to, muscles do you want to flex? And how will that job help you do it? And the biggest question is to remember we have reminders of this every day, but you have choices mm-hmm. and you, know, you should remember that and you should invest in yourself. Everyone has their own brand. Just because you're a Jewish professional that works in an organization doesn't mean that you don't need your own identity and brand. Even if you're not right. going to spin off and be your own marketing firm, your own development firm, your own program firm, you still need to develop and be able to talk about and market your skills. You need to be able to... And you have a reputation, right? You have a reputation. And people will know who you are regardless of how public you are with your work. So in the same lines of advice, I have a number of friends who work in the Jewish community who love their job, the work that they do. And I've been in this position myself, but whose supervisor or boss is less than perfect (laughs) and either makes their job more difficult or maybe it's just rude or makes things a lot harder for them. Is mentorship something that can help someone through that? And if so, how and where do you find someone to help you deal with a boss or a situation? It could be a lay leader or VP that is just really tough. Yeah. That's a difficult situation to be in. So part of it is thinking about who in the organization or outside the organization you can trust to be a mentor in the situation. And that is really important and being able to talk to them for advice. I also will say that I think that fish rots in the head and that toxic environments sometimes can't be fixed until the person is removed. So I do want to just Lay that out there that I don't think there's always a solution. Or that weakness is identified and therefore they are coached and trained and helped Correct. improve that thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do think though that there is a certain amount of the leader setting the tone, the culture mm-hmm. and all that, that either they are going to change their behavior, like you said, or they need to be removed in order to fix it. If though it's not that severe, then I do think having a mentor, someone who has experience navigating the politics of the workplace, maybe more experience, someone that has experience in the field, someone that has experience in your position. There's a lot of managing up that Mm -hmm. goes on. And when you manage up, it can get prickly. People, like you said, people are people, right? So there's a lot of emotion, a lot of things. So I do think that the best advice I would give someone who's having trouble with their boss is to be reflective about when it happens and the patterns of it. Mm -hmm. Because I think one-off kind of, you know, people that have a bad day and don't behave well versus consistent people that shut you down in a meeting or, you know, you work for hours on things that people say, oh, that wasn't the direction I wanted to go in. If that's not the direction you want to go in, well, that we can fix because next time before you go a deep dive, you need to schedule a check-in with them 
to make sure you know that you're on the right path. But I right. think being able to kind of jot down and look at when it's happening, how it's mm-hmm. happening, talk about it with a mentor, and then be brave. I mean, that's the other advice I have to people. Be brave and say, I love working here. I am really committed to my job. I think that you are doing a great job in these areas. Mm-hmm. These are areas recently that have been confusing for me or challenging for me. And it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. But I, it's so hard. But I really have to say that without honest conversation, two-way honest conversation, you know, then we just create a vicious cycle where mm-hmm. people say they feel bad, so their work is affected, and then it creates like a bad loop. So I just recently coached someone who was having problems with her boss and we role-played a lot about what she was going to say. So that's also something that you can do. She wrote some things down on paper. She sent to me to look at, you know, I made some suggestions Mm -hmm. on rewording things that, you know, felt too in the heat of the moment right? and not constructive enough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say having somebody, whether it's, you know, a spouse at home or whether it's a coach or whether it's a colleague or a mentor who you can really hold a mirror, that they can help hold a mirror up Mm -hmm. to the situation and help you think rationally about it and devoid of the emotion and then help you find the best way and time to address it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Because those are all, I think, big issues that lots of people throughout their career, whether it's happening now or has happened before or will happen in the future, are kind of are always on our minds. So how do you do it? What are things that you employ to have a successful consulting business, your family? I'm assuming you have friends and other things in your life, hobbies and such. What are things that you employ? How do you help kind of keep it all together? I think that I am constantly refining how we're keeping it together. We live by, no surprise, a lot of planning that goes on here. Share calendaring, define roles and responsibilities. We have routine and ritual is really our go-to here to really help allow for me to do my work, give the attention I want to my family and my husband to do his work. There's a high level of coordination and a high level of ritual and routine. And I think it's benefited our family to have that. We know what the weeks look like. We have calendar meetings on Sunday night. We share a Google calendar. We you know, have systematized a lot of functional things in our household and a lot of things that uh, go on. We are working to do more of that. So it's not all that mental thought because it's not just the physical challenge of getting everything done. It's the mental space what stays in your brain and what gets to, you don't have to worry about that. And And communicating the expectations of what's going on. I remember sitting with my husband and planning for our meals for the week to come and his sister happened to be visiting. And she's like, well, you guys really turn meal planning into work. And we're like, hey, you know, as planned as it is, it makes everything a lot easier. It absolutely works. It absolutely works. It works for us. And also just scheduling downtime. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think this is the part, I mean, every Friday night we have dinner together as a family. And we do something as a family Friday night. So Shabbat has really become a necessity. It's the thing that our family looks forward to, especially with travel schedules. And I think the key is to be honest about your needs. We've hired more house help at different times. Turns out that when someone's on a baseball field and someone else needs to be somewhere else at the same time and you're only one person and you're traveling, you actually need two people to replace those people. So, you know, it's being able to solve the problems you can solve with the resources that you have. And I think that has been a blessing 
and also allowed me to do really meaningful work and to grow my business because Mm -hmm. I'm not someone that, you know, I think would be happy. Like I would never want any of my clients to be happy being static or producing the same results year after year. I'm not happy for that for myself either. So I really push myself and I'm constantly doing the goal setting. So that takes a delicate balance and a lot of emails back and forth. Yes. <laughs> I also highly recommend Slack, being on Slack okay. or being on WhatsApp. I think using one of those constant texting where you can see the stream and you can make subfolders, that's actually a really great organizing tool for managing a household and or shared text or whatever you like. Wonderful. So is there anything else from our conversation and any of the pieces of work that you do that you feel like we haven't touched upon or that you'd like to come back to? No, I think you really did a great interview and I'm excited to go back and listen to the older podcast and uh, to subscribe in the future. And this is a great service. And just that this is a profession that, you know, a group of people that I'm always so proud to be with. And I think that the profession deserves increased respect and recognition. And I applaud your efforts to shine the light and let professionals kind of talk about their past. But I hope that people understand that this is a place that they want to work. I mean, I hope we Mm -hmm. can present the field as a field that's attractive to new talented people because it really is, you know, I I always say I I found my tribe. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. I remember early in my career when I was having some struggles, I was talking with a friend and she was like, I don't understand why you're going for your master's degree in this, Michelle. You seem to keep having all these, you know, really pretty serious issues and problems, you know, in the field. And I was like, not to be egotistical, but I was like, I think that I can do it better. Like, I think that I can be someone in my work who does not make other people feel the way I'm feeling now or not allowing that. So if we can help sort of push those bright lights and say, you know, whatever negative situation you may have had does not have to be the norm of your career. Absolutely. And that is a great thing that each of us should strive for, to bring our best selves and try to do it better. Even if you had a great boss, the goal is always to try to do it better, a great environment. We should never be satisfied. We should always be pushing to do more because there's a lot of work to be done. The issues that we face are real. You know, I just got back from being with some day schools and their struggles are real. Our legacy organizations, you know, their struggles are real, but yet the reward is so great. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, then, you know, you get up every day and you want to find a new path, a new way Absolutely. That will make it better. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Annette, for being on the program. I really appreciate all of your insight and advice. It's fantastic. Thanks, Michelle, for having me. Consultants are so key to the work that we do. It is often difficult to think about spending the money to bring in outside people when we're facing difficult situations. The role a consultant can play as they move from project to project is the most vital form of networking we have in our community. One organization could not possibly gather the knowledge accrued over many years of working with many different organizations on a wide range of issues. Many times we can get stuck in our own organization's history, mission, or operational norms that thinking outside of that is difficult. A consultant coming in with this kind of experience with different areas could really help us shine a light in a dark corner we've been unable to see. I love that I was able to bring Nanette on to really talk about how she looks at consulting in her practice. A piece that I loved from what she said was about putting coaching in your contract. 
Discuss with the organization what programs or opportunities might be out there that you would like to participate in that might help you in your position as you grow along the way. The other thing I wanted to highlight was when Annette mentioned that you have to work for it. Nothing can be taken for granted. We should constantly be thinking about how to retain and utilize our best talent, how we communicate our impact to our donors, and how we engage our leadership in the work. The last thing I wanted to mention was how much I love how real this podcast is. You may have been able to tell that I was sick when we recorded this episode, and each of my guests records their interview from their home or their offices with different connectivity speeds, equipment, background noise. This is the world we live in, and feeling under the weather or the phone ringing or dog barking or kids screaming or horns honking, I love it. I love being able to represent the real world that we all live and work in. I want to again thank our new podcast partner, the Jewish Theological Seminary. JTS offers a variety of professional graduate programs, including the Davidson School of Jewish Education's online MA, where you can earn your master's degree in Jewish education online. To learn more, visit www. Dot jtsa.edu slash admissions. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at it's who you know the podcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know the Podcast.